0: Brother Matt Thomas's uh, message this morning is titled Saltless Salt, and he's asked that I read to you from Luke 14, verses 34 and 35. Luke 14, 34, 35. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who, hear, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Good morning. Time to get the sweaters back out, isn't it? Got my wool suit back out. I had it all covered up for the year and had to yank it back out. It's cold this morning, but... Uh, I'll tell you what warms me up pretty quick is the uh, energetic singing in here. Uh, I sure love that, and um, I know it must sound beautiful from heaven if it sounds good from here. Uh, let's keep up the uh, fine worship that we're offering God, the heartfelt worship. Let's give Him our attention as the Word of God is, is spoken now for uh, these next few minutes. I want to set before you two things. I wonder if you know what these are. I suppose you'd be thinking it's two shakers of salt, right? But it's not. One is. What would the other one then be? Sugar, yeah, or something like it. But it's sugar. Salt and sugar. They look just alike, don't they? They look just alike, and uh, we eat them both nearly every day, although uh, both of them are would be equally nasty to just take a spoonful of it and just eat it. We come close to that in some of the foods we eat. Crispy you know, creams, Mountain Dew, it's pretty close to just taking a spoonful of sugar, isn't it? Olives, I hate olives. Some of you do, you like sodium. Sodium chloride. Or uh, pickled pig's feet, they're high in sodium. There's a lot of stuff that you all are eating out there that's, that's pretty rough. Uh, But uh, how would you find out which is which then, right? You'd have to to make the investment. You'd have to put it to your mouth, wouldn't you, and taste it to know. There's some differences, though, other than the way they taste. One is a mineral found underground, and the other one is a vitamin-rich nutrient (laughs) found in plants. Not really, kids. Uh, One of them, you taste on the front of your tongue. The other one, you taste when it gets to the back of your tongue. And uh, though they're very different, there's some similarities. and other similar, there's some very big differences. And one of the uh, biggest differences that I can think of is that God has not asked us for sugar. He's asked for salt. And there's a reason for that. Uh, you know, even though we moderns might live uh, as if sugar is a necessity in these days, uh, salt has always been a necessity to life. It's a necessity to life. In fact, um, it still is. It still has thousands of uses. Uh, life would be very, very different for us if we didn't have salt. Salt. And some of its components. You think about that for a second. How different would life be without salt right now? There'd be some things we would have to do quite differently. But he never asks for sugar. He asks for salt. And that we take on some of its qualities. And by the end of this lesson, it would be my hope that all of us would be a little saltier with each other. Right? In the uh, history of the world... Sodium chloride, as it's known, has been used as a seasoning to flavor food, but also as a preservative. In fact, it became an essential part of of commercial life and transactions in ancient history and was often used as a currency, as money, or as a barter or an exchange. In fact, the exchange of salt for slaves in ancient Greece gave way to a saying that we still use today, that someone's not worth their salt. Or the Romans had a saying, because they paid their soldiers uh, with salt, uh, that they were worth their salt. In fact, that word, salt, uh, was uh, called salarium, and that is the same word from which we get the word salary today. So when we talk about our salaries, what we make at our jobs, uh, that's where that word came from, is the use of salt in uh, paying for things back in the day. Salt plays a major role in uh, the leavening process, too. Uh, It interacts in the leavening process. Uh, When, for example, you leaven a, a loaf with yeast, yeast is a fungus, and what it does, and and I had to go learn this myself. I didn't learn this when I was in elementary school, you know, but I found out that, that it releases gas pretty rapidly into the dough. And what salt does is it kind of just keeps it in check. It keeps it under control. You know, if you didn't have some salt in the, the bread loaf, it would, it would rise beyond control. And so salt is a, is a measure uh, against that. Not to mention that the bread would be pretty bland without a little salt in it. If you look in the ingredients, Uh, In a typical loaf of bread in the grocery store, you'll see salt, but you'll also see sugar in in it as well. But the salt is in there for a specific reason. And while uh, the yeast would have actually a degenerative effect on our food, it's it's actually biodegrading the food, salt serves to preserve it then. And as it's baked, that salt really takes effect and keeps it preserved. For some time, well, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, God commanded that salt be used on all of the Old Testament grain offerings. He said, "Let all of your uh, offerings in Leviticus 2:13, every offering of your grain offering, you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt." Adam Clark noted that everything was seasoned with it to signify the purity and perfection that should be extended throughout every part of the divine service and, figuratively speaking, through the hearts and lives of God's worshipers. Now, that's what we will come to learn about this salt. God made what He called a covenant of salt with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, all the heave offerings of the holy things which the children of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and daughters with you as an ordinance forever. Now that's the key word in understanding this next part. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord with you and your descendants with you. The idea that that this is something that he is going to preserve for generations until when well until that one would come who would be the salt of the world who would season the world with grace and turns to us and says you ought to let your words be with grace seasoned with salt in fact in the mountain on the mountain sermon he said you are the salt now once we are infused if you will With the grace of God, through accepting Jesus Christ into our lives, we are both to preserve Him and be the flavor then that goes out into the world and seasons the world with our lives. And as we've been talking about on Sunday mornings in Bible class, through our good works, we flavor, we add flavor, and we add preservation. So in Luke 14, the chapter that was our reading for the week, or is going to be, in Luke 14, Jesus at the end of this chapter says, salt is good in its purest form, in its preserving state, in its fullest robust flavoring state, it's good. It's good because we use it to barter and... In trade and in exchange salt is good for a lot of things he said but if it loses its saltiness it's not even fit for the dunghill it'll actually have a negative effect it'll have a negative effect on your fertilization it'll have a negative effect on your compost he said you, you couldn't even you couldn't even use it um, to do anything except to throw it out like we would In the wintertime, and this is what they used actually, there's a record of it being used in the temple, on the entrance to the temple, salt that is good for nothing else but to be thrown out, not to melt ice, they wouldn't do that, it'd be a waste of a good product. When it loses its saltiness, they would throw it out for traction, like we would use sand or cinders on the uh, the, uh, crossroads, stop signs. Uh, usually there's a mixture of both, but you've seen the cinders and sand that they dump out for traction, or we might put some down around the house for our own traction. He said, that's about all it's good for, to be trampled underfoot by men. Do you want your salt, your saltiness, to be trampled underfoot? Is that all it's good for? He said, we've got to preserve saltiness. Now, I think that there are some good explanations of this out there. In fact, um, one commentator uh, spoke of how this word uh, can indicate uh, the way that, uh, that we drift from, from doctrinal soundness. Or that we our passions for Christ lessen and therefore our effect is is not as great. And and all these general ways that you can imagine, like when a Christian loses their saltiness, what what would that mean? We could come up with a lot of reasons like that, just generalities. But in the context of chapter 14, Jesus uses an example of what He's talking about that really cuts through all the guesswork about what it means to lose your saltiness, by getting right to the heart of, of maybe the most cutting examples of losing your saltiness. And salt can lose its saltiness when it's exposed to the elements for a period of time. It can lose that chemical p- compound. And he's saying, as a Christian, don't lose your savor. Verses 25 through 27. Now, great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them, now here's the context after which he says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing. Okay. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, the New King James Version has, and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Wow. Why did he pull this out and lay it on him? Well, like I said, if if we can understand what he means by this, then I think we can understand how you can lose your saltiness in every aspect of life. If we can understand... What he's meant what is being meant here by hating your father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister your own life also then I think we're going to get this point this word messiah can mean the word hate it can mean actually to, to hate with a hatred, to detest but it also can mean to love less or esteem less now the context must demand that, and we understand from the New Testament, yes, from the whole Bible, God has said to honor your father and mother, to love your spouse as one flesh, as you would love yourself, to love your children, as Paul taught Titus, for example, or for mothers to love, to learn how to love their children. To love our brothers and sisters, our siblings, and and the closeness that we can have, that the the wise man said there's only one closer than a brother, and that is Christ, of course. There's a closeness there. So we understand here that he's not saying you need to learn to hate your family with a hatred that that you would wish for their downfall, that you wish that they would be cast into hell with such a hate. Of course not. So we have to look at this definition of esteeming less, esteeming less. Notice then in the definition that you still esteem, you still esteem, you still lift them up in high regard. So unless you lift them up in high regard, less than me, you cannot be my disciple. So he is not here saying to take a view that downgrades your family, your immediate family that he has spent an entire book building up in us. An understanding of how to do that. What he's saying is there is one, that one relationship that must take precedence above all these. And if it does not, it's not possible that you could follow me. It's not possible that you could follow me. Well, it's still pretty serious. Okay, so we're not supposed to hate our family. That's good. But what does this mean? Well, your father and your mother. How could I esteem less my father and my mother, the two whom I should fear on earth, the two that I should revere, the two that I should honor uh, my whole life, most among men? Well, look at this. They brought you into the world, but they didn't give you life and breath. They didn't give you life and breath. I've often said that childbirth is is the closest thing to a miracle that I've ever seen. In fact, you could argue that it is a miracle. Because we do not have an origin for it, or an explanation for it, beyond the supernatural. Your parents didn't do that. Your God did. And so there is one who is greater than they, and that He gave you life. They assisted. They endeavored to supply your every need, but they cannot fill your soul. They cannot fulfill the desire that God has placed within us to seek for Him by seeking something in them. They cannot do that. They can love you unconditionally, but they probably didn't die for you. They might, maybe they would have, mine are deceased, maybe they would have given the opportunity, but both my parents, they didn't die in my stead. There is one who did that. One who is above them in that regard. Your parents promised themselves, and maybe you, that they would protect you from all evil if possible, in every way possible to protect you from harm as you grow up under their care. But they can't take away your sin. There's nothing that your parents can do to take away your sin. There is only one who is able to do this. You cannot replace the the will of God then with the will of mom and dad. You cannot replace their desires or the desire of, of God for your parents' desires. You can't replace the incorruptible beauty of the riches of our inheritance in Christ that await us in heaven with any earthly amount of inheritance that your parents may leave you. There's there's no replacement for that. So we have to remain salty, if you will, in regards to our parents and keep Christ first. He said, hate your wife. Well, esteem your wife less. And this is reciprocal. This also can be your husband. This is one of those teachings that replies to both. The love of your youth, to whom you cleave when you leave your parents as one flesh. Now, he's directing this to the husbands, under whose leadership the family is supposed to come to Christ, but it applies to the wives as well. Your, your spouse is the passion of your youth, and God willing... You'll grow older together and you'll be able to lean on each other through the hardships of the aging process, yes. When you're not able to, reverse your strength, regain your vitality, you lean on each other in your older age. But you know Christ is the spouse who when you walk with Him day by day, you're renewed in the spirit of the inner man that you actually, in the aging process, gain strength in a marriage relationship with Him. The spouse of your youth may be able to provide earthly companionship until death do you part. But in the afterlife, our earthly union will translate into the true marriage between God and His bride. And though husbands and wives will fully know, I believe, their earthly spouses in that place, they'll lay down their solemn duties to one another to help each other to come to that point, and they'll take on the greater relationship of the brotherhood that is found with Christ Jesus under one Father. Jesus probably shocked many people when he said, In heaven, they are neither. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God. All of the things that we enjoy in a physical way with marriage on earth are fulfilled when we reach heaven. They're fulfilled. We'll still be able to know. I'll still know Monica. I'll still be able to share eternity with her as with you. But there'll be no need for marriage to people coming alongside of one another and striving through this life to strengthen one another, to to meet their God, to, as Peter said, inherit the grace of life together, 1 Peter 3.7. Our spouses may get us ready for the grave then, but Christ is the one that's going to walk you across the Jordan. Your spouse can't do that. He'll preserve you through death by His covenant of salt. That promise to preserve you, on into the next life true love for your spouse means doing all that you can to assist them in bringing them to Christ who as in the passage that John Collier read at the Lord's table this morning in that same passage or that that context of 1 Peter 3 said that he might bring us to God So I want to bring my spouse to Christ so that he might bring her to God. Jesus is the first and only spouse who can take you all the way home. He's the only one who can say, I will never, ever leave you. No, not ever, as the Greek bears out in Hebrews 13, 5. Death will do us part here on earth from our spouses. Christ said, I will never ever leave you, no, not ever. Not even in that time while one spouse is gone and the other remains here. I am still right here, present with you. Do you see? <laughs> Do you see some of the differences here? Of of how we ought to place Christ even above our spouse? I hope so. Hate your children. Some of the kids probably perk up when they hear that. To esteem your children less Our most prized possessions who our lives revolve around, right? Wrong on both counts. Our children are not ours. They're gifted to us. We're stewards of their souls. But God has never said, I will give them to you to keep and own and possess, and someday I'll claim them back. He he has allowed them to come under our tutelage that they might become godly, Malachi chapter 2, that they might come to know Him and become holy and a worshiper of God. They're His. They're not mine. Kids would do well to know that. Parents are to teach them how to reflect His image, not their own. Now remember who you are today when you go to school, Johnny. You're a Thomas. Okay, that, that could be good or that could be bad. My parents never said that to me. <laughs> You're a Christian, however, would capture the image. We ought to, as parents, teach them how to live and give their lives for Christ not for the parents will not for the parents will not to hide Christ from others but to hide behind Christ that he may be seen in them this is what we need to be teaching our children parents are to teach their children that life doesn't revolve around them but but around Christ and godly parents will not be led around by the nose but will take their children by the hand and join it together with the hand of Christ to lead them to Him and let them cling on to Him. That is the role of godly parents. The proverb has it, a child left to himself will bring shame to his mother. I believe this is true. What's your opinion of it? I believe children will lead families down the wrong path. That's why God said to parents, be parents. Think of it. When you're a child, you see, you want, you want earthly treasures, you want to have mine, everything's mine, I want to own, it's difficult. We have to teach them to, to pry those little fingers loose and to share. We have to teach them the difference between the riches of earth and the, and the riches of spiritual treasures. These things need to be taught by the parents. And they need to exalt Christ as the, the gift giver, as the Lord above all of the family, and as Savior, even of mom and dad. He's been committed to us from before the world began. I've only been committed to Him for so many years. He's been committed to... I've been committed to my children for just so many years. He's been committed them to them from eternity. He's greater and his caretaking than I am. So once the kids understand that they are not first, but Christ, they also ought to understand this, that mom and dad are second, actually. Mom and dad are second. Their relationship is more important, immediately so, than life revolving around my wants and needs as a child. Oh, yes. If they're lucky, they might take home the bronze medal. They're going to be in third place. Someday, when they leave father and mother and go and cleave to their own spouse, they might bump up to number two. That's the relationship that, that comes first now in this world, but never first above Christ never first above Christ. Christ number one, parents, their relationship is the relationship that is tended to number two. and then the children come third. It means we hold some things in even higher esteem. And oh yes, it makes great sense that it's that way. What could I offer to my children if I wasn't drawing from Christ, from God? How much love could I give if I wasn't learning how to love? How much could they be accepted and understand unconditional love or forgiveness if I didn't understand it first from my Father in heaven? How could they learn to work through all things in a relationship, if I wasn't first committed to doing that with my spouse. You see, by putting them third, they're actually going to win. They're actually going to learn how to win, how to have Christ at the helm, how to have a a foundation and a marriage that lasts through all the storms, and that life doesn't revolve around them. What are the kids learning from parents? Are they being seasoned with the salt of preservation and flavoring? Or are we losing our saltiness by getting the order of priority, the order of esteem switched around? Finally, he says, yes, and whoever does not hate his own life also is not, cannot be my disciple. You are... You are the first person that needs saved as far as you're concerned. You're the first person. When God made you in the womb of your parents, he sought to bring glory to himself through your life first. When he made you, he had already decided to die for you. And there's nothing that you can do that you cannot repent and come home to him. But we can allow allow an awful lot of lies and an awful lot of things to become abstractions, even spouses and children. We can allow others to come in and cloud and to wrap around as weeds or thorns or thistles and to choke out my own sense of self-worth and value as a, as a creature of and as a child of God. I can allow that to happen. Above all things, he says, no, you be saved. You be saved. I know you're, you're a, a husband or a wife. I know that you're a mother. Or a f- I know these are grave responsibilities. You be saved. I made you before I made them. You be saved. You're the first person that needs to grow and the first person that needs to learn how to be a spouse and parent. You know when you're married to Christ, you learn how to be married. It's the best experience you can get being married, being a Christian. Because of the level of commitment that you have to Jesus Christ, you now then can take that and turn it over to a spouse and learn how to selflessly give, Learn how to unconditionally love. And then by the time those children come around, you should be getting pretty good at it. It should become you. It should become you. So we've got to keep that priority first. If you remember a couple years ago now, the, the concentric circles it looked like a bullseye, and we were saying, minister to yourself first, then to those who are within your stewardship or your care, and then to your brothers and sisters who are also in your care, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and then to the lost world, those who are apart, separated from God. There is an order there. I cannot give what I am not, or I don't have. So, Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow after me, you've got to retain your... Preserving properties. Be saved, stay saved, stay in the grace of God. Be a flavor that affects the taste in people's mouth about Jesus, my son, including your children. What taste do they get? of God, of Christ. And they're getting it from you. That's another great reason to make an argument to hand your kids over to Jesus so they know the difference between following me in my folly and recognizing and saying, I will choose the Lord to obey the Lord and obey my parents in the Lord, which means to put Him first even over my parents with all their faults. but you are the one who's responsible for your decisions to follow Christ or to be caught up in trying to please parents, spouse, and children. So he goes on in that context to say, if you're going to set out to build, make sure you count the cost and understand. And We would do well to teach our young people or those who are not Christians before they just jump in water to be forgiven other sins, we would do well to help them count the cost and say, "Do you understand what it means that He is Lord? He comes first above all else. All else, you yes, your spouse yes, your children absolutely. Oh, not my kids—they're everything to me. He comes above all. And if you're going to go out and fight," I'm going to go out and conquer the world now. I've been forgiven of my sin. I'm going to go out and I'm going to defeat Satan and I'm going to win some people to Jesus. Think about that, what strength you have to do that before you start spouting and go out and get beat and beat up. And people look and say, well, he didn't have what it took. Christ is weak. Christ is weak in him. Think about those things first. So I don't have to be full of strength the first day I'm a Christian. I have to understand where my strength comes from. I can be a mustard seed. But if I'm getting nourished by Him through that vine, I will be able to produce great fruit as He allows through His Spirit working in me. See, I just have to understand who's first. I don't have to be the master of all things from day one. But we certainly will learn mastery will certainly be seasoning and having an effect on people as we let him live through us and so to be his disciple wow yes it's a high calling isn't it but it just begins with your commitment to say i will come and i'll follow under those circumstances i will i will be able to do this anyone will be able to do this through the strength of Christ Jesus He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And if you want to become a Christian today, you can do that now as we stand and sing.